Welcome to the Thrive Alcohol Recovery Podcast, where we share tips, information, and success stories about a revolutionary treatment for alcohol use disorder called the Sinclair Method, or TSM. TSM can help most people reduce rather than abstain from alcohol by addressing the root cause of problem drinking, which is inside the brain. I'm your host, Katie Lane, Sinclair Method success story and co-founder of Thrive Alcohol Recovery, where we help you find freedom from problem drinking using this approach so that you can live your best life. Let's dive into today's episode. Welcome, everybody. It's Katie with Embody Daily, and I'm so excited to be here today with Dr. Roy Escapa who is really a household name in the Sinclair Method community as the author of the book, The Cure for Alcoholism, which is really all about TSM. And I highly recommend everyone who's on the method or wants to learn more about it, get this book. So first of all, Roy, I am so happy to have you with me. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. This all began more than 30 years ago with uh, David Sinclair's work and then I met him in the 90s, and it was quite by chance, uh, it was a serendipitous meeting that brought this all about, sort of accidental. Can you tell and us about that? Sure. What actually happened was, I, the members of my family have Crohn's disease, five members, which is an inflammatory bowel disease. So I approached a, a pharmaceutical magnate and he said to me we've got this medication called nalmaphene and it works for Crohn's disease because it stops inflammation through mast cell degranulation. I said really? He said sure you can call Dr. Sherman at this company IVAX in Florida. IVAX had rights to nalmaphene and Dr. Sherman was very friendly and he sent me a rationale and I took it to physicians in London where my family were being treated and the physicians poo-pooed it and said, uh, it's not gonna work. So parenthetically, there's a professor in the US in, um, at the University of Pennsylvania, Jill Smith, and she shows that a low dose naltrexone is highly effective in clinical trials for uh, Crohn's disease. So anyway, he's, I came back and said, they said no. And he said, well, it works for alcoholism. Alcoholism? In those days, we didn't know about alcohol use disorder or, or the more politically correct terms, which makes sense. And he said, yes, there's this man, um, Dr. David Sinclair, and he works in Finland for the Finnish government. And he's got a cure for alcoholism. It works. And I said, no, it's impossible because alcohol is not the same thing it's it's legal and doesn't work in the brain like uh, morphine or um, any other one of these opiates uh, heroin oxycontin i can understand how it would work as a blocking agent an antagonist for that but not for alcohol so out of curiosity and because i had a relative a, a first cousin very close to me who was struggling with alcohol uh, five years younger than me had been to all the different rehabs, had tried everything from spiritual treatments to a rehab to AA, you name it. Uh, I was looking for something that might help. So 
he said, here, here is David Sinclair's number, call him. So I called David, he was more than friendly. And he sent, and we discussed, you know, the, his approach, which I understood from having uh, worked with Arnold Lazarus, who was the first to bring the term behavior therapy into print. He's like me, a South African, but he's very well known psychologist in America. And um, I understood therefore what Sinclair was talking about when he explained in his papers that it had to do with learning and reinforcement. And I, I just had a sense, I, I had called him more or less to find out how could somebody think in this way. And by the end of the conversation, he, he said, you can come and visit, you can see our labs. I understood he was onto something. And I said to him, David, do you have any publications? What a question that was, because uh, when I got to my office in the morning, there, there was a ream of paper. In those days, we had fax machines that didn't cut the paper. It was thermal paper, and the paper was up to the ceiling. So I took it down and I cut it one by one with the scissors and I started reading his different publications. And I said, he's got something here. Within two weeks, I was in his lab. And this lab was uh, located in a building designed uh, to receive all alcohol products that were coming into the country, like beers and wines, for example, and the vodka, Finlandia and whatever else they were exporting through this actual building where there were executives who sold the alcohol and made sure that it was taxed. And the top two floors had, were dedicated to um, laboratories with, with medical doctors. And the very top floor, it had the research being done with, with rats. And these were very special rats. These were rats that were bred to express a liking for sweetness, saccharine, or alcohol, or morphine for that matter. And then you had another group of them who were resistant. These were resistant. They never took to the saccharine drinking. They never took to alcohol. So that's why Sinclair went to Finland in the first place, because there were only two countries that had the, these particular strains. One was Chile, which didn't have any money and wasn't stable politically. And the other, Finland, very stable. And the, the Finns had, through an act of parliament, passed a law saying, we uh, are going to support and fund research, unlimited research, to reduce the harm done by alcohol. And if possible, Dr. Sinclair, this was his brief, find a cure. And uh, Sinclair, no question, is a genius, was a genius. And he's still with us in some way in spirit. So his genius began way back in the States when uh, he began to, he left uh, the field of, um, uh, new, of physics, of uh, quantum mechanics. It didn't work for him. So he went to study the brain and he, his first place was in Cincinnati. And um, he was at the university there and he went to his professor, Dr. Center, and he said, can I run some experiments on some rats? Dr. Center said, 
Yes, you can, but you can't publish the results because these rats have already been used. They're not naive. So when Sinclair got into the uh, room, it was the afternoon when the rats are kept, he found that some of them were waking up as he got the alcohol bottles out. They smelt the alcohol in their sleep. Rats are normally sleeping during the day and up at night, the reverse of humans. And he, he noticed this unbelievable thing where they, uh, they woke up and they started, when he put the bottles on the cage, some of them were binging because they had been, had, had been exposed previously to alcohol and now they had been deprived, which was what Sinclair called the alcohol deprivation effect, which he published before going to Finland and was the reason why the, the Finnish government their national alco labs at the time but it's their na national public health institute um sort of headhunted him from the states the day he got his phd from the university of oregon he left for finland so um that's that's one of the things that happened and um it, it's a huge breakthrough because uh S sinclair was then able to uh, sort of prove his um, deprivation effect theory. And it's now very widely accepted because prior to this, people didn't believe, the researchers didn't think rats liked alcohol, so they weren't worth studying. And hamsters were difficult. They were even looking at a, a, a kind of animal here that lives on Table Mountain in Cape Town called a dussy, which is a, a small animal, but related to the elephant. They like alcohol, but very difficult to keep them to study. And uh, I must say that the rats were treated with great care. They were born with cesarean section. Uh, the, it was all very clean and that was very humane. And um, so what, what happened was uh, from from Cincinnati, David went to Oregon, and there he wrote up the um, deprivation effect in a well-known journal and found himself in Finland. And they said to him, here, here's all, everything you want to find a cure. So at first they thought, was it a, an absence of say zinc or vitamin, vitamin B1? Many different things they went through. And in fact, the office that he got at the um, Alco Labs at the, in this building was previously the office of a senior liver expert, a hepatologist, who himself died of alcohol addiction to his to liver cirrhosis. But he was the, one of the experts employed by Alco Labs. It was fascinating. You know, I went to see the offices, I went several times to many times to Finland and constantly on the phone with David. Um, at the time, naltrexone had not been approved for by the FDA in the US. It only was approved in December of 1994. And um, it was approved with the wrong directions, with directions to uh, take it with abstinence, which we know doesn't work. In fact, it's quite harmful to give those incorrect directions. It would be like saying uh, you have an illness uh, which is preventable with a vaccine, but we're going to give you the vaccine after you've got the illness. It's, it's bad science. 
it doesn't work. And uh, the, he, Sinclair had heard about the work of a man called Altschiller. Altschiller had been studying primates and he gave the idea that when mammals drink alcohol, there's a release of endorphins in the brain. And these endorphins reinforce the opioid system in the brain. We all have an opioid system. We need it to survive. When the baby goes on the mother's breast, the milk is sweet, fat, and salt. And this releases endorphins in the brain. It gives uh, a reinforcement to that vital system. If, if we have blocked the system, the baby, whether it be a baby rabbit or, or human or primate, would fail to thrive. They wouldn't get the reinforcement. I mean, if you've ever seen a baby uh, taking a bottle or on the mother's breast, they make all sorts of sounds as though they're high. So, um, and in fact, the North American Indians, which was quite interesting that David pointed out, when they, when the Europeans first came there, they wanted something called fire water, which they called mother's milk, which in fact was whiskey. You know, you hear stories about them selling tracts of land for a bottle of mother's milk. And so they associated this with mother's milk. And um, Altshuler showed that endorphins are released in, in the primate's brain. And it was Sinclair who put together the work of uh, Ivan Pavlov, who discovered conditioning, you know, classical conditioning, where uh, an animal, a dog for in his case, gets reinforcement, which is food, and there's reinforcement in the brain. Uh, and you can condition the dog, you ring a bell just before you give the food and pretty soon all you have to do is ring the bell and the dog is salivating without the food. But if you take the food away and you stop the reinforcement and you ring the bell, the, the dog still salivates, but less and less gradually each time. So he said, why not apply this principle of extinction? And we'll call it because we're going to use a medication to bring about this extinction. We'll call it pharmacological extinction in itself a exceedingly simple concept. But it, it, all of this was right in front of all the great researchers' eyes, researchers at Rutgers, all over the world. Immense amount of research and money goes into addiction treatments, particularly alcohol, which is the, the biggest one, the biggest killer of, of the addictions really. I mean, as cigarettes and smoking may are also very high. Although alcohol tends to kill more in the world than lung cancer and HIV combined. It's 3.3 million. It's more than that now, but that was a, a, like a 2003 figure from, from the World Health Organization. Um, so he decided, I'm going to try this experiment where I'm going to take these rats that love alcohol and love sweets, and I'm going to uh, expose them to alcohol and, and saccharine solution and let them learn it. And we'll have the other group exposed and we'll see they don't like it. They just carry on drinking their water and regular food. 
And then he said, let's apply uh, Pavlov's extinction idea. And what we're going to do is use an opioid antagonist. So in that case, they used um, naloxone, very similar to nalmefine and naltrexone, but shorter acting. And they did these experiments in all the possible permutations. They did it um, with by injecting the animals or by giving it to them in chocolate paste. And they found every time they gave the high drinking rats, the AA, alcohol accepting rats, the, the opioid antagonist, the naloxone, the naltrexone or the nalmethine, every single one of them, the drinking came down quite quickly. They have smaller brains than humans and they could relearn it. If you, if you stop giving them the medication and you expose them to the alcohol, they would carry on, uh, they would relearn the addiction. So you could cure them, but they could relearn it if they, they weren't protected with uh, naltrexone, nalmethine, or naloxone. And it was a massive uh, breakthrough. You know, to, and then to get from the lab into society, from these rats to humans, very unusual for scientists to actually see it happen in their lifetime. And uh, he did, he did. We worked on it from the, from the late 80s until 1994, big hurrah. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, he was DuPont who, who brought out the brand name Revere, which is now Trexone for alcohol, but with the wrong direction. So it failed. People were told, take this medication in fact, there was a study done in two th before 2000, and um, it was done at Yale by Crystal et or et al. Take this medicine, do not drink, go to AA. And, and it was found that those patients were not successful. So they concluded that naltrexone doesn't work. Of course it doesn't work. It doesn't work if you use it in the incorrect way. However, in certain studies, also with heroin, by a man called a, a group run under Renault, they found that uh, in heroin, uh, case of heroin users, those heroin users who were given directions to take naltrexone and not use were not successful, but those who disobeyed the instructions and went and used anyway, they brought about extinction in their, um, in their uh, addiction to heroin. So these principles could be applied to humans, but how do you do it in a practical way? And, and there are so many problems you get, you know, most people think of going to a rehab and, and going for an inpatient treatment or going to AA meetings, that it's such a hard thing to do. And, it's obvious. Sinclair was very uh, keen on reminding people that when Europeans got to Central and South America, they didn't have the wheel in use for, uh, you know, it's an obvious thing to have. So it's, it's so obvious to block this 
the endorphins released by alcohol in the brain with naloxone or nalmefine or naltrexone, um, particularly nalmefine and naltrexone because they're longer lasting in humans. And then as the patient drinks, each time they drink, the learned addiction weakens ever so slightly, it weakens. And, uh, and patients proceed at different rates. And we can also see the raw data as Sinclair said when he did his presentations, we don't show raw data normally of individual subjects, but he showed it in rats, how fast each one or how slowly each one reduced their drinking. So you had, you had them going fast like this, some slower, but, but they all went down. Occasionally you sometimes saw one go up first and then down. And the same pattern showed with the first 20 human subjects that they used. So how are, how are rats different than humans with regards to this? Because I know, you know, like you said, like the rats have smaller brains, so maybe the extinction happens faster. But um, I know you, you gave me an example of how Sinclair mentioned, like, you know, he really worked with rats. He didn't work with humans. They were more complex. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, in the end, he did work with humans, big human trials. Um, well, the rats, yes, they have smaller brains, they learn it faster, and they are very, very highly bred to, in, in this case. You, want, you need an animal model to, to actually crack the, the problem. So they do have smaller brains, they have shorter lives, so things ha ha happen faster for them. They learn it faster and they unlearn it faster. So they get addicted faster and de-addicted faster. And, uh, but humans are bigger brains. Humans have higher cortical thinking, so that interferes. They start telling themselves all sorts of stories. Well, maybe I can skip my medicine tonight or Maybe I won't be so funny at a party, I'll skip it. Yeah, and rats are under absolute control. They get the same dose every day. And so they proceed at uh, a more uniform rate, which is why you get 100% success in these rats, because you've got a uniform homogenous genetic background, uh, diathesis in their in their biology, whereas humans are varied, much more varied. And that's why we can get around an 80% success rate, cure rate, if you like, success rate with, with humans. But what about the 20% or 10% that you, you can't? And there are theories, there are hypotheses, why? Hypotheses leading to theories that were not really tested. I was with Sinclair um, for the two, three weeks before he died. And we went through many of these uh, issues, you know, as to why, why in some humans, and we conclude that alcohol is a very dirty drug. It's affecting many systems. It's affecting acetylcholine in the brain, serotonin, dopamine. It's affecting the uh, hormonal system of, you know, uh, endorphins, enkephalins, and it works also on GABA. And GABA is the one that drugs like Valium and Librium, the benzodiazepines work on. So uh, there have been some cases where 
you can you where you have not had success with uh, extinction using the Sinclair method, then you can give a substitute drug, which is quite similar to uh, methadone for heroin addiction, but it doesn't cure it. So they give baclofen, and there was a famous French cardiologist called Amundsen, and he wrote a book called The End of My Addiction using baclofen, but baclofen is not safe. And if you stop using it, it's, it's a substitute. So there's, it's not, you're not actually you're not removing what drives the addiction. If in theory, in, in theory, it's beyond a hypothesis, if you could use a GABA blocking agent that blocks GABA and drink at the same time, maybe that would help those people. But that's a line for future research and GABA blocking agents are not safe. I mean, they, they exist, but they could induce seizures and so on. I see, interesting. Is so there... yeah, so earlier on you um, talked about the alcohol deprivation effect. And I wanted to just jump back to that real quick for anyone who doesn't know what the alcohol deprivation effect is. Could you tell us a bit about that? Well, um, deprivation effects apply across many behaviors. It, it can be even, uh, say, chocolate eating or television watching. If you've been deprived of TV watching or the internet for uh, certain numbers of days, you will start to crave it, something you are used to. And uh, deprivation effects are now... Um, you can demonstrate them by giving animals uh, and humans, but it's easier to study with animals. You can give them uh, something sweet to drink, you can give them alcohol, and they get used to it. They learn it. They get reinforcement in the brain. The opioid system gets stronger and stronger. And then if you take it away, not much happens at first. Like anyone with an alcohol use disorder, pretty much it's said in the lingo, can stop for three months, four months, some say nine months, it varies. So, but when, when you do that, the opioid receptors may be popping up. They don't say anything, but figuratively speaking, you might say, they're saying, where's my endorphins? Where's my booze? Where's my endorphins? And it gets more and more active and eventually vicious. For example, dieting is an example. Sinclair used to use this example. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. He's American. Good health, peanut butter and jelly. He said, I'm on diet, but I'm not going to have peanut butter and jelly. So that's fine. The first three days, four days, the pictures start popping into your head. And this is all going on in this neural soup and through the neurons. Uh, but by the 27th time that pictures come into your head, you say to however, and you relapse, you go and you make a whole big <laughs> of peanut butter and jelly and butter and whatever. So that's one example of a deprivation effect. But the one sandwich is not going to kill you. But being obese, as we know now during the times of COVID, obese, I've just lost a friend who was very overweight to the whole COVID thing. My, we, we were at school together in, in Geneva. It was very sad. Um, 
so yeah so the, the deprivation effects apply pretty much across the board for the 15 percent of the population who carry the genes and the predisposition and actually begin drinking the other percentage of the population they don't they drink normally they don't become lose control over their drinking so that's that's one of the things that's really interesting and for the people who because earlier you mentioned how you know the rats are in the controlled environment and they're getting their daily dose of naltrexone or whichever form they're on and so it it can work more quickly for them in some cases than humans and so for humans and the ones that really struggle with this method who who are part of maybe that 10 to 20 percent it won't work for what would you say are the biggest obstacles they face because in my experience working with people I do see you know it's alcohol is obviously a coping mechanism it's a habit and so when someone isn't really ready to change how they view alcohol and what it means in their life and they're still turning to it every night because they're stressed at their job or you know they open wine every night and watch a movie and it's a, a habit they need to break even though the naltrexone is working for them um, yes. that habit or coping piece can really overpower the medication almost. So I'm just curious if you could speak to that from your experience and knowledge. Um, you know, the, the, at the time of all the, at the publication time of the book, uh, we had not uh, any information on research with different dosages of, of naltrexone. So that, that's something that needs to be addressed. And then, um, there was another concept called overdrinking, which we never got to, it was my idea. We never actually got to put this to the test. This is where you got the patients, even if they didn't want to drink, to, to drink on nights they weren't wanting to drink, but with naltrexone. This was more or less for post-treatment for successful patients to really stamp out there. They never want to see a drink again that sort of thing. But what you have are individual differences and you've got uh, human beings with their own ideas. And some uh, follow directions and some don't. You find this with diabetes, you find this even uh, with blood pressure medications for sure, they miss them, they don't take them. And uh, even with the COVID pandemic we've got now, people are, are not complying with directions to protect themselves so that's one of the problems and and there, as i set out in the book you can have an intensive treatment a medium treatment or you can do it among the rural poor where they get the concept as we showed in rural india and it can be done in other places and that's all you need to do take the medication and and drink never take it on non-drinking days and um, for those who don't respond, well, you know, it's, it's not an absolute panacea. There's no drug is, is a panacea. Penicillin is not a panacea. Even for the uh, last pandem major pandemic, the Black Death with bubonic plague, Yersinia pestis, it's a, it's a bacteria. But today, doxycycline, which is given for... Um, young people for acne and for other problems, 10, five days or 
10 days of two tablets a day of 100 milligrams of doxycycline will, would, uh, uh, will cure it, but you can become reinfected as well. If, you know, a year later, if that same flea bites you, but then there's a treatment for it. So I wonder sometimes these patients, they say they are meticulous. Are they, are they following directions and taking it one hour before? Always 50 milligrams. Or, and now you get anecdotal reports that two hours are better. But we had to use for the data to be strictly scientific. You had to say one hour before, but I'm hearing two hours is better. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Does that help? You? Yeah, it does. It does. It just ultimately there needs to be more research. And I think as the TSM community grows, like we're all kind of learning this together. I've learned so much just anecdotally from people over the years and notice patterns and things that tend to pop up uh, like throughout groups of people. So it's really interesting. And I did want to ask you too. So, you know, the end goal for the Sinclair method is pharmacological extinction. And I'm wondering if you can describe what that means exactly um, for people who might not know what it is. So in an ideal world, pharmacological extinction brings loss of control over drinking into control. That means the patient, the person, the individual can choose to abstain because they can easily. The biology of the addiction has been fixed. The, the, up until now, there has been no way to uh, reduce the opioid superhighways in the brain. And this was all tested in Sinclair's lab very carefully, uh, looking at the brain. And um, this allows you to actually cut back gradually the superhighways so that they are normal highways, more or less restoring the brain to its pre-addicted state. It's like when the person was a kid of 14 or 15. Of course, they can relearn quickly if they stop using the protection of the medication of the safe opioid antagonist. Naltrexone, better than nalmethine, fewer side effects find. And some people say that naltrexone is just a substitute for alcohol. You're replacing one drug for another. Can you describe why that's not true? <laughs> um, well, firstly, uh, one drug is, is reinforcing. So heroin or alcohol are reinforcing. But if, if you take out a naltrexone, if any of us take it now, uh, we won't feel much. There may be some side effects in 8% uh, of people initially get a bit of nausea, but that's often because their livers are stressed or for whatever reason, but that usually goes away. So uh, you're not, it's not substituting, you're not getting any reinforcement. It's impossible to get addicted to uh, an opioid antagonist, naloxone, nalmethine, naltrexone, just impossible. You, you, you cannot do this. There's new work being done for depression with psilocybin, which is a class one drug, magic mushrooms. This is helping for end of life fear. They're doing it at NYU and at Johns Hopkins. They're doing it at Imperial College in London and in many places for depression. And um, 
the whole point about the psilocybin is it's impossible to get addicted to it because if, if you treat a patient one day with it, the following day, there will be no effect. The receptors, it's the um, serotonergic receptors all burnt out. So you have to wait a week for it to recover. So it's impossible for that to be an addictive drug and it should not be a class one drug and it will be declassified soon. It's made legal in certain parts of the US, I think Colorado, there are various jurisdictions where it's allowed, maybe Oregon. Um, but uh, certainly as from what I can see, that has not really been, well, it's been touted as a cure for alcohol addiction, but I don't believe that, I haven't seen that in, it's never been put to trial that I can see. Okay, yeah, that's good to know. And then mm. I wanted to ask you for the Sinclair method for binge drinkers, you know, the people who might drink once a week and then do a 24 hour binge or once a month even, um, yeah. because the traditional kind of approach from what I've seen in my personal experience with binge drinkers is that, you know, you don't necessarily want to wait for that one time a month to take the naltrexone and have an extinction session. What's your experience and thoughts on treating binge drinking with TSM? Very difficult. Again, it comes down to individual differences. I mean, logically, it makes sense that if they were binging every day, they would, uh, it, it should proceed, the extinction should proceed faster. But if you're binging, say, three or four times a year, and it's very dangerous, binge drinking is the most formous, dangerous form of drinking. That's how um, uh, Senator McGovern in America was running for president at the time of Nixon. His daughter, who died of the cold in the Midwest, she tried all the different... Uh, rehabs and he wrote a book about her she died of cold in frozen to death in the midwest yeah it's very sad the uh, lack of knowledge um, so she was a binge drinker so what happens is you get patients who try to abstain and you can have people who are 10 20 even 30 years abstaining to aa and they've got all their medals and stars and Hats off to them if they can do it. They don't need the Sinclair method. But you do hear of patients, of people going to these treatments. And what happens is they have one drink and it sets off the whole, the whole system is still in the brain, all the software. The uh, pathways are still there. They get reinforcement and they lose control and they can die. So, or they find themselves, you hear crazy stories, they find themselves on a different continent, they got on an airplane, they lost their judgment, you know, things like that have, have happened. And so as far as the protocol addressing binge drinking, would you say, like, I've heard some TSM doctors say more frequent drinking sessions, so you're not just waiting for that once in a blue moon binge to kind of, like you said early on, kind of like, having those repeated extinction sessions just to kind of set that foundation? Or what would you say? I would say in, the, in, these, in this case, it is, you do need attention. This is not a home treatment because binge drinking, we should put that in the book. You know, we could only do so much at the time, but it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's an upgrade. It needs an upgrade. Need, this needs 
careful medical attention, like heroin addiction. You don't take, you're not a heroin addict and take naltrexone every day. Uh, you need to be watched and you need intensive medical care. But for the majority of people, it's quite simple and straightforward. They don't need that. And uh, the straightforward protocol of naltrexone, 50 milligrams, one hour before a drinking session is the way to go. If somebody begins in the morning drinking and they find themselves, say they started at nine in the morning, they find 12 hours later at nine at night they're drinking, they should take another dose because the half-life of naltrexone might not be covering them, they may still be getting reinforcement from the release of endorphins. So each physician, each doctor, each TSM counselor needs to work with those particular patients who are having difficulty with binge drinking. In fact, that could be a whole new chapter. It should be in the book. Maybe you care to do one on an upgraded version. I would love it. I see this and come up a lot with people who have been drinking, binge drinking patterns, and it is a common question. Um, so then on the flip side of that, what about alcohol-free days? Because I know in the book you talk about, you know, the importance of even stacking two alcohol-free days together in a row. How important are they on the method? And, you know, should someone, you know, try to force them or should they allow them to come more naturally? Or what's your thoughts on that? Yes, this is different again. I think it's a good goal to aim for because um, one, it helps the body and the liver to recover. And two, it consolidates the extinction. Now, you, during rest, that's when the brain learns. So it's, it's going to unlearn. This might just make sense. So I think that was one of the reasons uh, David liked those off days off drinking but also you don't want people on benders non-stop you know that are so addicted that it's they're not it's not breaking through they're going on and on and on and they're taking the, the it's, it's better to have a break it's like taking a, a long road trip you you should stop for gasoline you should stop for a rest I appreciate that advice. Um, something else I hear people ask me a lot is if they're going to a doctor that maybe isn't knowledgeable about TSM, they might say, okay, I'll prescribe it, but you need to do two weeks sober before you start the method. Is that true that sobriety before the Sinclair method is useful or helpful or even needed? Absolutely not. It depends again, but generally not. For example, in uh, Socialist England with the National Health Service during the 50s and 60s, the standard treatment for uh, alcohol problems, for alcoholics, was to admit them to a national health hospital where they got free, uh, three uh, square meals and clean sheets and a bed every day. And they were given uh, vodka, say, and orange juice measured. So the nursing sister would measure a certain amount out in the morning, noon, night, and they would gradually reduce it. And the patient would go through a wonderful and safe withdrawals. You have no brain damage because if suddenly you stop alcohol, you can get seizures, you can have brain damage, you can have deaths, 
as they did have in Scotland and they had to change the law there to have a doctor on staff on a Friday and Saturday night when they had drunken disorderlies who would die in prison cells from seizures because there was no more alcohol in there. So, I mean, that's, that's a very important point to, to be aware yeah. of. And in the book, you also talk about how TSM can be a blueprint for treating other addictions. Um, do you, to your knowledge, has there been research on other pharmacological extinctions or addictions or behaviors? Yes, even, in, even at the time of publication of, of the book, which was the first one was in 2008, and then in 2012, uh, Sinclair had kept an annotated bibliography, and we, I cited some studies, for example, with, with gambling. The American Gaming Association funded a study with uh, Dr. Lin, and they found a 75% success rate with gambling. The gambling really is a non-substance uh, addiction, so there's no actual substance, but it's releasing endorphins, whether people are losing or winning, and it's very hard to break it. So there's, there are studies like that. There are, def, there are definite studies for amphetamine. Uh, the, the one that I cited in the book came from Karolinska Institute in uh, Sweden, and uh, they did not want to attribute the success measured by lower urine positives, statistically lower urine positives for the metabolites of amphetamine. So it was working, naltrexone's working for amphetamine. And in that environment, it's a homogenous group of addicts because they were only pretty much addicted to that one drug, amphetamine. And they didn't want to call it pharmacological extinction. And my view about that is that it, there's a lot of academic rivalry that goes on. Because if you really think about what the contribution of David Sinclair, it's Nobel Prize worthy material. Firstly, the deprivation effect, and secondly, pharmacological extinction. In fact, Pavlov got the Nobel Prize, it's, but to nobody else, nobody else thought to bring, to meld these two things together. It's, and you can save thousands of lives. It's not just the 3.3 million that die. It's the, what happens with crime. Women and children are beaten up. We've had to, in South Africa, have a control of an alcohol ban now. There's uh, alcohol is not sold because of the uh, COVID crisis. Because, uh, and we find that there are less car accidents and so on, but it's very difficult for alcoholics. They should able to get get it but you know there's less crime there's less violence as a result so there are many there are fewer accidents the emergency rooms are not don't, don't have so many car accidents then less knife wounds from aggression yeah. there you are wow well so i have three more questions for you just to wrap up um the first one is why? I mean, you said he's deserving of the Nobel Prize. I absolutely agree. This information is life-saving. And I know personally, and I've seen it with countless others as well. So why isn't the Sinclair method more well-known? Well, you know, I, I wrote a whole chapter. I didn't want to do it because I thought the book was done. But 
Glenn Yefeth of uh, Ben Bella Books and David insisted that I do it. So I sat down and I thought, why? And it's a, it's a whole chapter called Why Haven't I Heard About the Sinclair Method? It's, and I outlined several things, um, but just off the top of my head, the first thing is that there is no way really to profit from it in a big way. Uh, the medication is inexpensive, it's generic. There may be 10 or 12 manufacturers. I know there are two in India, there are several in the US. It's a very, the DEA declassified um, naltrexone as a controlled substance, so you can have it on you without having to produce a prescription. It's legal, it's a totally unabusable thing. So one of the things that David spoke about was infrastructure, that doctors assume, people assume that the only way you're gonna get treatment is you have to stop and you're going to go to AA and you're going to go to rehab or some other form of uh, abstinence-based, faith-based treatment. That's generally the rule. And I, mean, I was trained that way. I was trained, don't touch alcohol for people who have drug addiction problems. You send them to Alcoholics Anonymous, learn about rehabs, and I, I had to attend and get signed off in order before I got my, we all did before our PhD, what to do about addiction. So we went to, I, I went to Gamblers Anonymous in London while visiting my parents. And it was the most unbelievable evening. I couldn't believe what these people were doing. And they all were happy to sign off. Well, the, the head of the group signed off. It was near Victoria Station in London, I'll never forget. And uh, I asked them, you know, is it ever curable? They said, never. And people did ridiculous things to tragic things. They went to jail for no for for stealing a piece of metal that they could put fifty pence into a slot machine. Um, so, what was the question again that you asked? <laughs> Just why isn't the method more well known? Oh yes, so so you have this infrastructure. It's very hard to get an oil tanker to turn around. That was my image. So it takes a long time to get this whole infrastructure change and then of course no profit what rehab wants to have outpatients they want to be able to charge between 20 and eighty thousand dollars for 28 days some of them will offer you yoga or 1000 thread um, linen and uh, wonderful food and but it's nothing to do with that it's it's all in most of it's in the the brain is 90 percent of it the biology now, it is not only the brain. I remember we get put on a presentation at the Finnish embassy in London and we invited all uh, the doctors and hospitals, private people working and also uh, heads of hospitals who were doing private hospitals, NHS hospitals to come to a presentation on uh, you know, the Sinclair method. And for them, the whole concept of allowing or instructing people with alcohol use disorder to carry on drinking, in fact, that is their medicine. The naltrexone and the drink together, that's your medicine. It, it, it's counterintuitive. And that's why we lost my cousin, because he died in 
December of 95. And the medication was approved in December of 94. But he'd had a car accident and he was on um, opiate painkillers. And therefore, we couldn't start until June. And uh, then his parents were very skeptical of having him drink again with the medicine. And it was six months now. So he was dead a year later, you know, December of 95, age 35. Tragic. And he, he, in many ways that they die, many of the people who die from alcohol problems, it's never diagnosed. He died of asphyxiation. He threw up sandwich, breathed it in, choked, that's how he died. And on his death certificate, they will not write the cause. So we think that the rate and the incidence of this is much higher in the world than WHO even. Wow, that's says. a really sobering thought, the fact that alcohol deaths aren't, are more than we even imagined, because there's already a huge number. Wow. A huge, it's an epidemic and it's, a, it's like a pandemic. Um, it's very, very hard on society. But, but now there's, there's something that, that in a humane, compassionate way based on science can help. And one of the things at that, uh, at that presentation that was given in London at the Finnish, uh, it was actually at the Finnish ambassador's house, um, one, one of the things is that I, they got up, uh, David got up and he said, this problem is a psychosocial, it's a biopsychosocial problem. So it's biology, psychology, social. So if you are coming from a background, the social, if you're coming from a background where there's a lot of drinking going on, uh, like for in the north of England and people are not employed, uh, you can have a bit more of a problem because every, some of us have more, some humans have just a little bit of the genetic predisposition, but that will get reinforced more readily. And so the social environment, the, the peer uh, pressure, for example, one of the good things about, about this treatment is how you can prevent, prevention was a big thing for in TSM. If you know that, that you have family members who ha have had a problem com with compulsive behavior, particularly drinking, and a uh, kid is going off to college, you say, look, your uncle had this problem, or your father had it, even grandfather. If you go out, there's going to be peer pressure to drink. You may be in the 15%. Well, all you need to do is take this medication one hour before drinking, and you won't learn the addiction. You cannot learn the addiction this way. It will protect you as um, a prophylactic. So that's, that's an important point. And I think there will come a time when there will be home testing for the if people are carrying the genes. I know UCLA was doing research on that to see if there's a particular gene. Uh, and then you would be able to know, I'm 
potentially can learn this addiction if I start drinking. Well, so what advice do you have for family members? Like, you know, what, what happened with your cousin where they didn't want him to keep drinking? That's obviously still happening today where it just doesn't make sense to family members, this whole method and to keep drinking. What advice would you give to them well, if their loved one's struggling? It's very difficult to convince people who uh, have set ideas. Uh, it's extremely difficult um, to change beliefs, you know, and because it's counterintuitive. But the best thing you can do is say, look at the science. You can show, for example, stories. I have here, uh, I put two, there are two chapters. This is Claudia Christian's book. Um, it's journeys, journeys and there's yeah. lots of stories in here. Did you have, I haven't read all of it, but um, Beth's, you know, they, and they all get there in different ways, but they're all using the, the core of it, which is naltrexone plus drinking equals cure. <laughs> naltrexone um, plus abstinence failure equals success. We would rather use the term success. Yeah. Wonderful. And the last thing is, I mean, just what advice do you have for people who are, you know, interested in learning about the Sinclair method, whether it's for themselves or for someone else or whether they're on it and just learning more about it? What kind of, you know, golden rules or general advice do you have for people? Well, I think inform yourself of the science. You know, read the literature. This is this book, The Cure for Alcoholism, the medically proven way to eliminate alcohol addiction, we covered as lot of the science as possible up until 2008 and the annotated bibliography to 2012, but there's a lot more out there. And you, you need to find out about um, from other individuals, just inform yourself, learn about it, see what the science says. Be, uh, see what the science says about the other uh, treatments up, up until now. NIAAA, NIDA, NIH, the National Health, the World Health Organization, they all say that traditional treatments will fail at least 85% of the time, which means the person will be relapsed back to dangerous and heavy drinking within a year. That's not to say that if someone has done well with a traditional treatment, a spiritual treatment or a traditional treatment, such as Alcoholics Anonymous or the standard Minnesota model to, uh, that that is giving them, a, you know, we're not duping them into thinking that's a reason to start drinking again. They're doing well, but if they relapse, here's something that can be compassionate, cost-effective, without a revolving door of having to come back for treatment. And it helps the majority. You know, there's, there's no, no, nothing is going to help. Uh, there's no such thing as a real panacea. Now there's ivermectin is being spoken about for uh, COVID. Well, uh, there is data on it. It will help some people, but it's not necessary. We don't know yet if it's a panacea. So the sa same thing, we, we do know now that naltrexone is not a panacea for everybody, but for some, it's magic. It's for Claudia and many others in, in this book. For you, it has helped. It's wonderful. 
Yeah, and it did feel like magic when I was like, oh my God. Well, I want to thank you so much, Roy. Is there anything else you want to share or say or anything else you want to, yeah, before we wrap up for today? I was recently approached by someone, I don't remember who, to do two books, to take this one, uh, The Cure for Alcoholism, and do one for scientists, for doctors, for psychiatrists, people working in the area of addiction medicine, and the other one more for um, uh, the average uh, person in need. So that's, that's one idea. If anyone wants to do dissertations, uh, approach me. I have some ideas on how you can extend studies. There may be uh, master's level students or going on to PhDs who want to do it. I'm here, you can contact me. Oh, that would be amazing to pass the torch and continue the research and having something that speaks to doctors because I know so many are busy. And like you said, they're kind of not really equipped to treat addiction. So I just see time and time again, where doctors are kind of like, no, go to AA. So if they can get more knowledge that speaks to them, that would be amazing. Well, one of, one of the things that, that I came across in the States was that many people did not want uh, to let their medical records out because they might show that they're on naltrexone. And then when they apply for a job, the employer says, why? And, and they look it up and they see, oh, heroin, they see alcohol. So many are doing it on their own and they're ordering naltrexone online and the DEA declassified it as a controlled substance. And of course, doctors don't want, they don't want this, they lose income. And it's probably better to be supervised if you can. But that's one way people are doing it. Um, I, I certainly would prefer the supervision of some level. Some need their hands held more than others. And some much less. So uh, the thing is that there is strong data for it. There's really, really strong data. There were it's well over 120 studies. And if you look at the Amazon comments on the book, most of it is, you saved my life, thank you, in one way or another. There are some complaints. Of course, it doesn't work for everyone. And some are ideologically opposed to using medication, drugs to treat a drug problem. Well, you know, from my perspective, we have an island near here called Robben Island where they imprisoned Mandela. It used to be a leper colony long ago but there's now medicine and it was considered a spiritual problem so some original sin or some cause but then there's a medication called dapso that helped with the hansen's disease or leprosy and it cured it slowly but cured it and people then read so that science takes time it takes time for people to change Absolutely. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this will reach the world um, and that it will one day become not too distant future an over-the-counter treatment where uh, naltrexone is given over-the-counter as it is in certain countries and patients can follow online. If they want help, they can come to someone like you mm -hmm. to guide them through 
uh, and online they would get their um, uh, record keeping, they would have a dem demonstration uh, and so on, how to, how to, to do it and, and do it privately in dignified, you know, dignified way because it is still a stigmatized problem. To have an alcohol problem is, is shunned. It's, uh, and it oughtn't to be because really it's just pretty much an illness, a condition like uh, diabetes or high blood pressure for which there is a treatment, medically proven treatment. I just wanted to ask, you mentioned it's over the counter in some countries. Do you know off the top of your head which countries those are? I last heard Spain and Portugal, but now I've heard Portugal, Spain is not doing it. Okay. Who knows why? They were allowing one box per month, which is 28 tablets. And it was something like 23 euros, so $25 or whatever. Very inexpensive. But things change, you know, and I think it may vary from place to place. In India, they, it's well over the counter. It, it says it needs a physician's prescription, but nobody uh, bothers. And the, uh, as I said, the DEA declassified it as a controlled substance. And U.S. Postal Service customs don't seem to interfere when it comes through. And they were ordered from Canadian pharmacies at a lower cost and also from India, which makes some, you know, quality you know, we, we found it was very good, the quality. And a lot of people are using those Indian brands uh, for success. But uh, there are many, many brands you can choose from and uh, order from a reliable person. Of course, it's best to have a medical doctor in charge, you know, guiding you. But there are many reasons why people have to resort to going underground. Yep. Well, mm. I just, it was so awesome to have a chance to speak with you. Like I, I have so much admiration and respect for you and the work you've done and information in the book. And I just, yeah, I want to thank you so much for taking time to speak with me. Oh, and I want to thank you for uh, being one of our angels to help spread the word. You, you know, you've learned a lot. You, you, know, you probably clinically know more than me with the people <laughs> in many areas. Yeah. yeah, I am only approached now for the very difficult cases. That's um, I'm happy. Any, I will advise anyone on on this. You know, it's it's like a life's calling. Yeah, it's been a wonderful thing to to be able to do to contribute to the world. And just as uh, Glenn Yefeth of Ben Bella Books, who, who agreed to publish this book because there were 50 rejections, he said it will grow at far grassroots level. No one believed it. No one believed it. My agent didn't believe. He thought I'd made up the Wikipedia on the Sinclair method. But eventually they believed it and it's... You, you are actually what Glenn predicted would happen, grassroots. And I, yeah. I think I heard that Hazelden was using it, some of these big uh, organizations. So, well. you know, but if they, they've got to use it in the right way without this abstinence 
you know, enforced abstinence. It won't work that way. And it's malpractice. And the malpractice should be pursued if it's if people are directed to use it that way. Mm-hmm. Because that's not what the science shows. I can't tell you. Sorry. There's an unfortunate it was an unfortunate black box warning in the physician's desk reference, the PDR in the US, which said, watch out for the liver. And, but naltrexone is safer than paracetamol or acetaminophen on the liver. Like, like uh, over-the-counter pain medicine? Yes. Wow. Yes, you can knock out a liver with paracetamol or acetaminophen, uh, you know, quite easily. So that, that is a concern I hear from people a lot is like, what's it going to do to my liver? So you're telling me, I, for most, most people, I would imagine as long as they have healthy livers, it's, it's safe. Yeah. Yeah. The, the maximum dose is 300 milligrams a day. So there's six, that's six tablets. And we are saying one tablet, if you're drinking every day, that's the maximum one, I mean, we are only using one tablet or maybe two if they're drinking in the evening, but you can take six every day without stressing the liver. Wow. That's 300 milligrams. If somebody has already got a stressed liver, so their liver enzymes are very high, then they may need to abstain for a while to bring that down. But that is a medical doctor's uh, decision. So that's about it on that. Okay. But it's, it's it's an extremely safe, non-abusable, inexpensive medication, and it's not the pill that does the curing; it's the everything together. Yeah. yeah, I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, "Oh, I was prescribed this a couple years ago with abstinence, and it didn't help, so I stopped after a month." And they were just you know, so close to the method yet so far and they're, now they're rediscovering it again in this correct way to do it. So it's... It's quite tragic. And in many ways, it's, that sabotages this treatment. That sabotages the treatment. And uh, it's malpractice. I mean, you could prove it in a court. You know, the US is very litigious. They sue, there's a lot of lawsuits there. You could prove that in a court. And, uh, you know... There could be severe penalties. So doctors ought to be aware. There may become a class action eventually to to do this in the US. And the US is the one country that has the power to do that, getting people together and uh, starting a class action to um, allow naltrexone to be used in the correct way which is the Sinclair method way with for, to get pharmacological extinction. And the other thing is, that, which I think I neglected to say, is that the better you get, the less you use. So for, therefore you're spending less. So it's not a very good business model to make money out of. But it's a human service, you know? I mean, Yeah. And I really do believe there's a tipping point to this grassroots movement. I mean, it is becoming more and more well-known and maybe a class action. Wow. That could really bring a lot of awareness to it. Maybe that is a way. That would, that would be quite a wonderful thing as things settle down in the U S to get people together throughout the community. And particularly there may be some 
lawyers, legal scholars who have benefited or had a relative, a son, a daughter, a wife, a husband, whoever, uh, a spouse, um, a parent helped by this, and they may be successful enough themselves to start off a class action. Yeah. That requires that requires connections and skills and mm-hmm. um, you know and knowledge. It's, it's a different department. Okay. Well, thank you so much again, Roy. It was yeah. wonderful to speak with you. Thank you. And thank you for the work you've been doing by making it more widely known. I have to say thanks to Claudia because I just I remember when I first started becoming more of an advocate for it it was just I kept reminding myself well if she hadn't have done it I would have never known about it and so I just felt this like immense need to do it as well. Absolutely you know absolutely the more the more that are out there doing it the better. Yeah. And I, I see on Facebook there's you know the TSM warriors there are all sorts of things going on this is all good as long as they stick to the central message of the book. Yeah. And there are basically three requirements. The first one is to treat, if you're the, you're the treating physician, psychologist, counselor, treat the patient with dignity, and then um, always take your naltrexone before drinking. And Sinclair wanted them to, to keep a, a drinking diary. That is helpful. It's not absolutely necessary, but it is very helpful so people can see how they progress. Yeah. And uh, there is a little bit of cognition that comes into play. The main thing is the biological, you know, fixing what happened to the brain. That's the foundation. Yeah. Reversing it, restoring the brain to its pre addicted state. I mean, what could be better than that? So the craving is down and the actual drinking is down. And people often say, I don't even think about it anymore. It's not even part of my life. And I say, well, go and tell the whole world. Thank you for tuning in to the Thrive Alcohol Recovery Podcast. For additional Sinclair Method resources and support, please check out the information in our show notes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.